I'll have you know that I, don't, I think I remembered to hit the record button until all of the lessons except for the last one. I was so close. Okay. All right. So uh, we're going to have a prayer and then we'll get started. So we're going to do the review. If you, it, in the book, it's on page 127. Now I want to hear about the sort of things that you have found that is helpful or impactful about First Corinthians. And I thought about if I had to say one thing, like one thing that really stands out to me in First Corinthians. Here's what I would say: Always treat the fruit of the Spirit as being more important than the gifts of the Spirit. And I think there's a couple different audiences that this message could, would be important for. The first would be if you happen to be someone who, who is particularly gifted in, I'll say, some of the obvious spiritual things. You need to know that those gifts could come with a liability. Because I worry that sometimes people might, might look at their, their gifts that God has given them and think, well, I've arrived. God obviously loves me. Look at the good things I do. And you can even look at the impact it has on other people's lives and say, look at the fruit it bears in other people's lives. But that's their fruit, not your fruit. Right? So that you can subtly fall into this, this idea of thinking that you are, you are loved and you are saved because of the gifts, but that's not the case. Right? God gives you these gifts. But, and, and, and you remember that in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, when Jesus has given his disciples the, ab the ability to throw out demons. And they come back and they're like, they, they listen to our name, we can throw them out. And Jesus stops them. because he, I, I think because he understands this warning. And he says, do not rejoice that the demons listen to your name. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Right? That should be the focus. And Jesus kind of tries to recenter them. And you know, it, it occurred to me, I wonder if Judas could do some of these gifts. That man was dead inside. So that's one audience. Sarah Wright brought up a point about how there's the audio, other audience is also mentioned in 1 Corinthians. You remember when it's 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and it talks about how there are some parts of the body because they're not the more obvious valued ones, they think, well, I guess I'm not part of the body. So we, and she's right. I think we tend to talk about the people who have the gifts. We don't necessarily talk about the people, what happens to the people who don't feel like they have the gifts. So that's the flip side of this. And I think it is a real tendency for those people to feel like they have less to offer. But again, that's the flip side of the issue I just said before. I knew somebody who had struggled with this, and he told me that he felt like he was damaged goods. Because he used to have some of these, these abilities, and things changed in his life situation. He, he couldn't do them anymore. And so he felt like he was damaged goods. And I could tell that he felt as if he wasn't, he wasn't as confident in his salvation. See, that's that flip side. Later, his life situation changed, and he had more opportunity to do those things. And I could, I could tell that he felt more confident. But you see, that's the same person on both sides of the issues. 
And I think he's gotten it wrong on both sides of the issue. So if you feel confident because you have these skills, you need to know that could be a real problem for you if it, your situation changes and you can't use those in that, in that way. And your confidence never really should have been in that anyways. All right, so let's talk about question number one. Who's got the hand? Yes, Katrina. Um. I 100% agree with you. Because it's like we, the world has gotten to this point, well, it's done two things wrong. One, I think it's misdefined these terms. Right? You look at some of these views, it's like, oh, this is a man. Because, because what? In some cases, you look at what people think is manliness, and I'd say that's just, being, that's just being a bully. And so we can fall into that trap. And then now the world is saying there's no, there's no definition for feminine and masculine, because men and women don't even have a definition, which is a ridiculous view on the other side. And I like that too, because you go to, let's say, 1 Timothy, and Paul's trying to correct this view where, where women are more focused on their clothes and, and their appearance. Sometimes that's how the world thinks of femininity. Like, oh, look at me. I, I, I look the right part. And, and Paul's actually trying to do the opposite, say, hold on, there's, you should be more, it should be deeper than that. There is a definition for femininity, but that one wasn't the one in, in a certain sense. I mean, of course, I get it that there are certain places where, where femininity should, there are symbols of femininity we want to maintain, but it has to be deeper than that. So, I, yeah, I 100% agree. And by the way, you can always go back. Obviously, I have an agenda, but I'm not one who has a tight agenda, so that's totally fine. All right. Anything else on that before I move on? Okay, so what has stood out to you in 1 Corinthians? And this could be either something we talked about in, throughout this class, or maybe there's just one really important thing you, you think about when you think of 1 Corinthians or, or anything related to that. Lisa? That's a good point. I, that was actually one of the things on my list, too. I'm really surprised at how patient he was with them to patiently explain these things and ignore some of the chaff where people seem to be criticizing him. And he just acts like they didn't happen. It's like it's not worth mentioning. He just moves on. Yeah, I agree. Raymond? So um, I'm going to quote something I read today uh, from a back in Baxter. I don't know who that is. And it's kind of from English back in the day. So there's some speaking. It's going to be like quoting Shakespeare? Yeah, it's going to read it in weird cadence, so bear with me. Okay. 
Yeah, and I, I like that too because the part of the quote mentioned prayer. And there are certain things that could that have the appearance where everything looks fine when it could be wrong under the surface. And so if you were to line those up, I mean, somebody could be a really good speaker and they could really expound the text really well and in theory could be dead inside. You hear stories like that. But I would bet if you could look at something like good preaching and determine how, to what degree that means that person is spiritual alive, it would not be as good of an indicator as a good prayer life. Because I, I don't see why somebody would have a really good prayer life who, who isn't really trying to be faithful with God. But I could imagine a person preaching well and not having a good, good relationship with God in theory. That's a good point. Katrina. Seems like it's 
Yeah, it's a good point. And that's where I think we sometimes, I found myself in the past making assumptions for how this works or doesn't work and how hope, for example, fits into all of this. Remember, that's, that's chapter 15. So hope somehow has to, has to fit this. And, you, and there was a question actually in the study that we didn't really talk about. Was it to what degree do people in the world sin because they don't have hope? Or to what degree is that, is that actually the other way around? They don't have hope, so therefore they have sin. It's like, this is the only thing, if, if this is the only life that you have, this is all you got. You better get as much out of it as you can. Right, so how much is that driver back and forth? And I think the, the reality is I think there's both directions there. Yes? One thing that I saw through the book is the amount of emphasis that he puts on, on a lot of different issues. He emphasizes the resurrection and the gifts. He, re- he emphasizes the importance of uh, faithfulness in marriage as well as singleness. He talks about uh, meat sacrifice to idols and the importance of that, head coverings, and the Lord's Supper, and the importance of all of these things. Um, but to Trent's point, that the issues that arose among the Corinthian brethren was whenever they forgot Jesus as the center of the picture. And that, that's the center of all our issues and all of our sins. And that we forget that Jesus is the center of Right, yeah, it's funny because like, I, I, I 100% agree with you. Right? The gospel is here throughout this because the gospel should change every aspect of your life. There's no part of your life that you say, God, you get this part, but, I, but not this part. The gospel affects everything. right? And that's why I don't like Rosaria Butterfield, the, the woman in that video. She said she does not like the phrase gay Christian. Because she says, I'm afraid that what that means is like, well, here's the part where God gets to keep. And then there's this other part that's my little part. She said, I don't like that. But if you're a Christian, you're a Christian 100% of the way through. You can touch every part of your life. Yes, Craig. Uh, something I noticed, uh, I'm reading through it again, was both in the first and second Corinthians, how frequently Paul uh, commends others who are working in the kingdom. He kind of points out... Uh, I mean, it's interesting. It starts first Corinthians by saying, "You've taken this too far. You started dividing yourselves by those who taught you, and that's foolish." But he does, throughout his letters, say, uh, "Commend and receive and and support these people who are out there working." And I just found that really, really encouraging and convicting. We ought to be looking around and, and seeing who, who's out there working, who needs encouragement, who needs their arms held up. Just letting somebody know that they're doing a good job and that work is appreciated uh, can go a long way in, in furthering the work. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because when I was prepping for this class, there's even a quote, we didn't, we didn't cover it, but in the study guide about that, when it gets to the end, he's like, commend these people. It's like, wait, 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 wait. It's like what you said, but what about chapter one? So there's obviously an appropriate way to do it and an inappropriate way to do it. And I think this is one of those, and I've been trying to do a better job of this because Think about how many times somebody does something that really has an impact, and you say nothing. It happens a lot. There's this film that, this just sounds like the sort of film I would just hate, but it's called It's a Wonderful Life. I'm like, really? I mean, it just sounds like it's just gonna be sappy sentimentalism, but it's not actually, because the, that movie really plays with this idea that you have an impact that you don't even know that you have. 
And so it plays out this guy's situations, like what if you didn't exist? And he sees how everything changes. And what's odd about it, it's, it's totally a weird movie because most movies you build tension where there's something they don't have and then you relieve it by them getting the thing in the end, whether it's justice or something they deserved or whatever. This movie never does that. He doesn't at the end change the person's situation. He changes his view on the situation. There's very few pieces of art that manage to do that and do it well, and that's actually one of them. So you think about, what is my impact? Answer, you don't know. But one day you'll find out, and it's probably bigger than you think. And so we should you know, maybe make that so, let's bring that to be smaller so maybe we know more about what that impact is so we know to keep doing it. Yeah, good point. By the way, if you want 1 Corinthians a sequel, otherwise known as 2 Corinthians, Craig and Michael will be teaching it soon, so FYI. What else? Let me mention one thing. that It's a verse that was odd because it... I think I just read over it and I didn't realize its significance. And the more I thought about it, I found in my, in my teacher's guide, I just kept referring to it over and over and over again. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2 and 3. So the context is that Paul's dealing with people who have knowledge that meat sacrificed to idols is nothing, because idols are nothing. But they're using this knowledge like a club. They're not, they're not using it in an appropriate way. And so Paul corrects them. Now remember, what's weird about this is that their knowledge turns out to actually be true in much of a regard. So it's how they're using it is wrong. So it's not necessarily getting the thing wrong, it's how they use it that matters. And he says, the one who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. Okay, but, but he goes on and says, to some degree, to some degree, they're actually right. But look at that thing. He says, he talks about knowledge. He thinks he knows something. But now he's going to do two things here. Paul is going to shift from knowledge to love. And he's going to shift the direction of the knowledge. So then he says, but the one who loves God, so now he changes it to love, is known by God. So now the knowledge is there. But the knowledge has shifted in its direction. And I, so I think this is pretty noteworthy here because when you say that, th- that thing, that second part is known by God. I think this is what, what Katrina was mentioning about having this gratitude. Like God knows me. You know the significance of that. It means what he thinks about me matters and everybody else, what they think about me is secondary. And I think that answers a lot of the issues with the pride that you have in First Corinthians of people you know, wanting to show their gifts because they want to show their own skills. What are they trying to do? And I, it kind of got me thinking more and more about how I wonder how many times we fall into traps because we're trying to convince other people that we are gifted and that we are worth loving. Maybe we're even trying to convince ourselves that we're worth loving. Well, what if our view wasn't about we're not trying to convince anybody else. We know that we're loved and we have gratitude and that's what drives us forward. There's entire books written about how how cultures think about identity and where you get your identity from. And I think this is what he's saying. Your identity is from God. It's about how he thinks about you. It's the only thing that matters. If you read books on, on identity, they say there's two major parts or two different cultures. One would be like an outside hand. So this would be a culture that tends to be more in the, in the past but also in Eastern cultures where the world tells you if you have value. So this would be cultures where you know, you got to get good grades and how your parents think about you and how you, the success is portrayed in the world is what gives you self-esteem and value. Paul doesn't believe that's the right way to do it because it gives the world control. 
But you've seen culture in America shift to more of an inside out. It's what I think about myself, and that's the only thing that matters. And then it asks society to justify your own views on yourself. And Paul's view is that neither of those are right. It's actually how God thinks of you, and everything else is secondary. And that's where your identity comes from. And when you think about that, the reason I think gratitude fits in is that this is an identity that is received, not merely achieved. Right, so you think about that, that's where you start to put gifts in their proper place. They have a place, but not, but not because you're trying to achieve something from a performance. That's not how this works. It's something given to you. And that's radically different than other world, world views. And then you also think about how it changes whose praise you even care about. In the, Tolkien, in, in the Two Towers, he says, there's a quote in there. It says, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. Now, if you think about that, if you, somebody comes to you and you did something... And this person comes to you, and they're not good at the thing you did. Let's just say they're not very talented, and they say, that was really good. Okay, that means something. But what if the person praises you for something, and that person is really good at it? It means more, doesn't it? That's why people say things like, coming from you, that means something. But whose praise is the best, then, for that? It's God's praise. He's better than everybody. So if he praises you, that's the praise that actually matters. That matters above everything. And I think that's what kind of what he's saying here. It's like, known by God, it's about what God thinks about you. When you wrote your identity in that, there's a whole bunch of stuff that falls in its right place. Right, man. To your point, um, a few chords actually really thought about how the way you put it makes the gospel according to John fit perfectly with 1 John, because this is exactly what 1 John says, right? It's about how you love other people is the mark of whether or not you're actually living this thing out. Yeah, I'd never like, glued that quite so specifically. It's a good point. One thing that I have changed on too is I was surprised how much Paul focuses on singleness and the value of singleness. Another surprising for me, though, was that the more that I thought about singleness, the more that it affected my view on marriage. Because I was thinking about how when single people commit themselves to basically a life of celibacy, to do it right, think about how that means in a certain sense they're holding marriage in high regard. Because they're, they're saying this, the thing that is supposed to be associated with marriage will stay associated with marriage. And I also think it's maybe more obvious that when single people do this, they're doing this out of a commitment for God, not just out of a personal preference, 
But then that makes you wonder, if singleness is not merely a personal preference, well, maybe marriage is not solely a personal preference either. So maybe I should be thinking about marriage. I mean, in a certain sense, I, could, I can understand what people would say is a preference because you have a choice there. But on the other hand, if singleness is supposed to be a life focused on God's needs, well, should not marriage still be too? I think it seems pretty obvious it should be. So maybe, I'm not saying choose singleness necessarily over marriage. I'm saying, but if you do choose marriage, choose it for the same reasons. But how can I use marriage to, for the gospel's sake? Just like I think we obviously understand with singleness. All right, anything else before we move on? All right, what are some things you could do with the message of First Corinthians? How could it change your life, how you, how you act, and so forth? in class, but the whole, when we talk about divisions like that too, part of it was because of a division I was through years ago, and I remember talking to the people who I would say were dividing the church, I mean they were dividing the church, and somebody asked him, would you be willing to overlook this issue, this particular thing, and he said, not anymore, and I thought, well that was odd, because I thought the whole point we were dividing was over this issue, but it was obvious it wasn't at that point. Was something else had switched. So he's, not anymore implies at some point he would have actually been willing to overlook it. So what changed? And, I, and then I started, when I started thinking back, I thought, I see it more clearly now, what was going on here. There was, there was other factors at play that we were just so focused on the issue, we didn't realize that actually probably wasn't the issue, or at least it wasn't the sole issue that was going on there. Anything else? Katrina.
Yeah, that, you know, it makes a lot of sense that we're supposed to live like this if what we're supposed to do is love. Because love is something that, to see it expressed, there has to be somebody else there. I remember years ago, there was this elder in the Church of Christ, and he, he had this blog, and he has this picture of a church, but it actually was an outhouse. So it was this little tiny church where only one person could fit in. And it said in the meme, it said, finally, a church without doctrinal error. Because it's only one person, right? You, you agree with everybody in the church. Oh, that's true. But, but also, the doctrine of love couldn't, how could it even be expressed in a church like that? There's, I mean, so it turns out, it actually, it does have doctrinal error in some sense. You've ever heard people, and I don't know why people say this. I've heard people say, I love Jesus, just not his followers. Let me translate that. I don't love Jesus. That's what that actually means. Like, this would be like saying, I love my wife, but I just don't love her kids. No, you don't, you don't get to, no, you don't get to, that doesn't work, okay? That just does not compute. Raymond? Yeah, I, I agree. And the thing is about it is that it, I like the comment that Anne-Marie was mentioning here because it, somebody rec- they, she recognized that this is a big thing. This is an identity change. I die and he lives. Right there. Right, I mean, but at the same time, we have to be careful, like you said, to make sure the people... We also recognize that you're not going to get cleaned up in a day. And, that's, and it's going it's to take a while. It's going to take a long time. And I... I remember somebody was talking to me about how he said he, his father wasn't a believer. His father was kind of going back and forth on it. And he told me, he said he, he appreciated the fact that his father knew this was a big deal and was taking his time in a certain sense. Later, sometime later, I, I mentioned that about how he had appreciated this. He's like, yeah, you know, he told me. I started to shift my view a little bit on that, though. He said, because at some point, he needs to make a commitment. And that's where we, we have this kind of tension here. You're not going to get cleaned up in a day. But you need to start that journey too, though. 
And so, yeah, maybe, maybe we need to do a better job of making, making a, figuring out how to describe that to people. Josh. I think you had brought up about how in chapter 12 it talks about the whole body reacts when it's being injured, regardless of what part it is. If it hurts, the whole the whole thing responds. And also, you think about how the, the body image answers so much of the stuff. Some of the more obvious body parts are actually the ones you need less. You can live without hair. You can't live without a heart, okay? But you can't see a heart. And if you do, well, you're, you're in real big trouble, actually, but, or you're a heart surgeon. So, I mean, it doesn't necessarily follow that the obvious ones are even the more the more useful ones, per se. Yes? Um, you asked what we can do with this message, and I know this has probably been said a hundred times, but the fact that Paul sees these broken people as the church, and they're not just a little bit broken, man, they got problems that we would be shocked by and don't want anything to do with it. And the fact that you reiterates that the foundation that everyone can build on is Christ, and in 316 where he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? I, I think for me, I need to ask myself that every day, and I need to remember that about everyone who lays their foundation on Christ. Yeah, good point. I, I when you look at the issues, it's a, it's a shock. It's a, he says some of the things like, You are the Lord's temple. Um, okay. Well it looks like they're living more like a pizza hut than a temple, you know? But it turns out he still said they were the temple. Yes, John Crowley. Yeah, I, I had always kind of viewed First Corinthians, like, there are certain chapters in there that are about certain very interesting topics that bring up a lot. First Corinthians 13 is the love chapter, First Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter, right? Like all those things. But I like this sometimes going through the scene, the broader picture. Yeah, and I had a similar thing too, is, is that I think I had, I started to read First Corinthians a little bit different because I had looked at it for how it answers the particular issues, and then I realized I need to take a step back 
and think about his entire thought process. But because then I can use that same idea and approach to answer a whole set of other issues that he hasn't even necessarily specifically addressed, but could be answered with the same approach. Yes, Jen. Um, so chapter. Yeah, I, and that's the other thing. I think hope, I, I've realized more and more how important hope is to our spiritual life. Just for you said, everything seems so rocky, and this is the one thing. It is not moving. And I can't remember exactly how he put it, but it's, I, I mean, he could, actually, is he even here? I don't think he's here, but it says something about how, like, it, oh, that's right, I know he's not here, because he, that's why he's not teaching, because <laughs> we worked on the schedule. But, yeah, that's the unmoving thing, and that's the thing you can bank your life upon. And if somebody was going to be able to prove a resurrection wrong, I think they would have already done it. And I love the fact that there are a lot of religious leaders you can go and look at where they've been buried, and you cannot do this with Jesus because it's empty. Craig? I'm kind of cheating because I've just recently been doing something right? Um, but I do sense, even in first somebody has a warning and doesn't respond to it and then another warning doesn't respond to it there's at some point you say you know I don't think the issue is this issue anymore it's I have to start questioning faithfulness you know are you really committed to this like I hate saying that but it's like you kind of have to go there at some point I remember there was a Christian who was talking about at first I was a little bit surprised by this but then it, it made more sense he said when I see people changing their views for non scriptural reasons on same sex marriage he said, same-sex marriage is not necessarily a big deal theologically per se. He said, but you know it is a big deal. 
It's fidelity to Christ. At some point, like I can understand where somebody might be confused on something, but when they know otherwise and they still don't, see that, that's more concerning to me. Yes, Robin. I think sometimes we focus on the, the physical part of the resurrection, but it's also a lesson about the spiritual aspect of being just changed in a way that we've always wanted, but we've never been able to achieve ourselves. Yeah, good point. Raymond. And to, to Robert's point, I think there's, Satan loves to convince um, the self-righteous that they don't need a savior or that they're comfortable with their merit or whatever. And, and likewise, that there are people that are too sinful to be saved. That's the opposite end of the spectrum. So, and I think I think I brought this up before, but the, the armor of God has to do with defending yourself. The sword is the only actual offensive weapon. So, a lot of this is anchored in faith. And um, I'm going to sound like a really old preacher, but it really does require you to read your Bible. I, there's too much going on up here, there's too much going on in the world, and the distractions that have been in the 21st century. You kind of have to give your attention over to, and I know that that's a struggle, that, that comes with that when you're alone again thing, um, where, where your mind is, and we're not really assembled a whole lot together. That means there's a lot of time to think and question, and there has to be a little bit of um, your own ability to assemble with the Word of God, uh, and that's that's something new to me too. That that I need to do more of. But I think we'll always be convinced if you've ever heard um, someone on their deathbed has maybe preached for 30 years, still struggle with have they been faithful enough? I don't want to be there. And, and I'm sure that that means I need to think more about Jesus and what this relationship is 
Yeah, I mean, if hope is a driver for spiritual success, then why would that not be a target for him to try to take away from you? And, you know, you said you sounded like an old preacher. That's okay, because you sounded really old when you were, when you were quoting what sounded like Shakespeare, so. Um, just yeah. talking about how we see, how we can kind of see the resurrection much in a physical light. Um, I, I also kind of think about the other things he's discussing, too, right? It's like, he doesn't come out. I mean, he gets to the yes or no answer to their issues, but they'll just give them the yes or no answer. He gives them kind of a surprise thought process of how we deal with these things and um, what, what sort of heart you need to have. And so that, I think, is a lot more universally applicable than just trying to figure out, you know, try, like I was thinking, we try to narrow down. That's a good point. So you can maybe I could say it this way: If Paul was just worried about the the outward behaviors, he wouldn't have had to explain to get to that spiritual aspect that's under it. But he does explain because he understands the behaviors are merely an extension of this spiritual life that you should have under it. Good point. All right. Thanks, y'all.